Surely we have all waited at some point for a pot of water to heat and begin to boil. We probably have made the mistake of watching it as well. Even though we hear that watch pot never boils, we stand there and we wait and we wait and we wait and it seems like nothing's happening, right? There's nothing going on. The appearance of the water never changes until all of a sudden it starts to boil. Now, most of you, or some of you at least, know I'm a physics guy. I appreciate anything happening in the water. We know something is happening the entire time. The, the water molecules are gaining energy from the heating process, and, and they're getting more energized. We, we can't see that energizing, or that, that more energy is being there until they reach a sufficient point where the energy their intermolecular bond, and, and suddenly they change phase from liquid to gas, and people are rolling their eyes saying, who cares? Still, the fact is, simply that we cannot see this internal molecular process until the point of that phase change doesn't mean that nothing's happening. This evening, we're going to see a similar principle frequently applies to God's actions. Just because we cannot see what God is doing from our perspective, that, that in no sense means that he is not doing something. A few weeks ago, we began looking at, at the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets in our Bible because they have smaller books. It's one of the prophets that God called to, to speak for him after the Babylonian exile. You may recall that Zechariah came onto the scene two months after the prophet Haggai showed up in Judah. God used both these prophets. The, these men were from priestly families. He used both of them to challenge the, the nation that they need to get back to work rebuilding his temple. Fifteen years earlier, Cyrus of the, the Medes and Persians had permitted, or granted permission for Zerubbabel to lead any Jews who wished back to Judah after they had been exiled by the Babylonians. The, the king, Cyrus, he said that they could go back and they could rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. The, the Medes and Persians had conquered Babylon by this time in history, and with their new ruler came this new stance toward the Jews, just as God had promised through his prophets before the exile. Zerubbabel, he successfully led a, a group of people back to Jerusalem, and when they arrived, they found the city was still largely in ruins from the, the years, 70-plus years before when it had been destroyed. Just as we talked about this morning, that great destruction that came in 586 B.C. This group came back. They saw the city was still in great disarray, so they quickly got to work cleaning things up. Then they began to lay the foundation for the temple so a new temple could be built where the old one had been destroyed, as we talked about this morning, where the cedar walls had been hacked as they tore the gold off to loot it, and then they burned it to ground. Well, they started laying the foundation for this temple and encountered opposition from the people who had lived in the land over those past decades. These people were a mixed descent. Those few Jews that were poor that were left behind, I mentioned, they had mixed and married the foreigners that had settled in that empty land that had been moved there by Nebuchadnezzar, and now were this mixed descent group. And they wanted to help in building this temple, and the Jews rightly said you could not, and that created opposition. The end result being, as we talked about last time, the temple activity ceased. And the people focused on building their own homes in the city. And 
15 years went by, and then Haggai came on the scene. God brought Haggai forth with the challenge, if time, to get to work. The, the people responded to God's challenge, and they picked up their saw, they picked up their hammers, and, and noise started to fill that temple area again as they got to work. Two months later, God called Zechariah. As we saw a few weeks ago, Zechariah brought a challenge to the people about their own heart repentance. The fact that they allowed the temple to lay there unfinished for 15 years represented a, a heart problem. The people were working on the temple, but that did not mean that their hearts were fully right before God. God had rebuilding to do within the people just as much as they were busy rebuilding the temple where they could when Zechariah added his voice to Haggai's, it was with a short challenge that we looked at in the first six verses of, of the book. Tonight, we're going to add to that initial message. I trust you have your Bibles open to Zechariah chapter 1. Look with me at verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, as follows. Zechariah is suddenly given a new prophecy here. That's, that's what this verse tells us. We're, we're again given his full lineage. If you compare verse 7 with verse 1, it's identical in, in the lineage aspect. We're given this full lineage, and that suggests what he's about to receive is very important. There's a soberness to his lineage being given again. We're also given the specific date that he receives this additional word from the Lord. A date that, if we want to use our calendars, it would work out to 15th of February, 519 B.C. That, that places this, the second message from God about three months after the first one. Back at, at verse 1, we're only given the month, not the day of the, the first message. So we're not able to tell exactly, but... Between two and three months, two and a half months, somewhere in that range, three months, somewhere in that time between messages. More specifically, though, if we take this date that we're given, the, the 15th of February, 519 B.C., and we compare this date with information we have in Haggai, we find that this is five months to the day from the time the people started working on the temple. The people are demonstrating their commitment to God. For five months, they've been rebuilding the temple. They're demonstrating they are going to keep at the work. And this time, opposition has come up again, and they've just ignored it and kept at it. The people are demonstrating their commitment to God. God, in turn, now demonstrates his commitment to his people by revealing some stupendous things. Now, we're not going to see everything tonight that God reveals to Zechariah on the 15th of February, 519 B.C. God gives Zechariah a, a long revelation. It, it consists of eight different visions, eight different sections in, in this single night. Zechariah probably didn't get much sleep that night, is my guess. The, the, the record of these visions, they, they run from verse 8 here in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 6. We're not going to cover all of that tonight, in case you're wondering. In fact, we're only going to cover the first of the eight visions that, that Zechariah receives. Still, I think it's helpful if we know where we're heading. God rewards the people's five-month effort here with information. 
They've been faithful to rebuilding temples, so God now shows them that he has a plan that includes Israel. There's a future for Israel, especially for Jerusalem. Israel will once again become a mighty nation. Jerusalem will serve as as the seat for the Davidic dynasty again. There's a glorious future coming. From the various visions, um, this much of the future is clear. Now, I'll, I'll warn us in advance, the visions themselves are not, however, entirely clear. Um, they are in nature. When I say apocalyptic revelation or Daniel, those places where there's lots of symbolism, that, that doesn't always seem to make a lot of sense. They, they do address future events, but they, they do so with all this symbolism. Zechariah sees these visions, but they're not always readily understood. One of our challenges will be to, to limit ourselves to the things we can understand and resist the urge to indulge in, in a bunch of speculation when we, we really want more. That's one of the great dangers that comes from, from prophecy, especially apocalyptic prophecy. There's so many details that we want to speculate on. As I said, on the night of the 15th of February, Zechariah receives eight visions. Each of these follow a general pattern. There, there's a couple of introductory words that tell us we're shifting to a new vision. Zechariah then tells us what he saw. Zechariah then will ask for a meaning of the vision, and an angel will explain to him what the vision means. Now, in four of the eight visions, there's also an oracle. An oracle is not a word we use often, but, but think of it as a prophetic sermon. It's a sermon that deals with future things. And is added to the, the end of some of these visions that as a prophetic sermon that Zechariah is now to pass along to the people. Not only can he share with them what he saw, he's to tell them this, this sermon from God. So tonight we're only going to look, as I said, the first of the eight visions. Zechariah receives here on this, this very eventful evening. But, but in a sense, this first vision functions kind of as a key to all of the, the visions that will come. The, the vision itself is given in verses 8 through 13. So we're just going to have a simple outline here. Uh, we have the vision in verses 8 through 13. I, I don't plan to pick apart all eight of the visions this much, but tonight we're going to take this first one really piece by piece. All the details of what Zechariah sees, remember I said he always starts with seeing something. Well, all the details of what he sees are given in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Well, clearly this vision came at night. That much is, is easily understood from that. So, so we naturally think of a dream, but there, there, there may be some overlap with dreams and visions, but we should probably think of di- vision as different than a dream. Uh, it seems clear that Zechariah understands that according to verse 7, this was a word from the Lord. This wasn't just a dream that, that came through his sleep. This was something that God placed in his mind. It's not something his imagination created as his brain floated there in a sleep mode. Nor was it a fleeting image when he awoke. You know, oftentimes our dreams disappear as we wake up. This was a message from God that he saw and then recorded. There are a lot of 
intriguing details in this verse, several details that we see in the picture. First and foremost, we have this man riding on a red horse. Now, right from the beginning, I want to caution us. It's tempting to grab onto the description of the red horse and, and try to find a meaning in the color. For example, in Revelation 6-4, there's another red horse there. And there the rider takes peace from the earth. We're told that in Revelation chapter 6-4. So from that verse, we, we may want to join a whole lot of commentators that I read this week and, and assume that, well, the red horse has to be associated with the sword in some fashion. It has to be associated with war. It symbolizes war and death. Now I want to caution us, as you can probably tell from the way I'm laying out, let's not jump on that bandwagon. There is nothing in the rest of the text that we have yet to read that, that suggests any interest in the color of the horses. Nor is there any literary link at all between the, the common color in, in our text in Revelation chapter 6. There's nothing in Revelation that, that in any way points back to Zechariah and says these things are one and the same. There's no link at all. That, that visions often include details that enhance the picture that surrounds the action. But yet the details don't really affect the action. This is a little bit like reading a book by a good author. I'm going to pick a book, for example, that probably some of our younger kids have read. The Harry Potter books. Some of the kids have probably read that. See? I want to pick something that will at least get them interested. Now, regardless of what you may think about the books themselves, Jane is a good author. She's created an entire magical universe in, in her books. I, I maybe thought of this example because one of the actors that played Professor Dumbledore in all the movies passed away this week. Maybe that's what put this, this in my mind. I don't know. But, but anyway, in, in the books, there's a lot of pages given over to the professor's office. His office is filled with all sorts of gizmos and gadgets that she gives elaborate descriptions of. Most of these items have absolutely nothing to do with the events of the book. Yet, all of these items that are in his office, they, they create a picture that enables the things that do matter in the story to work. They, they work in our minds. They make sense because she's created this picture where these things that then she pops out to have action just fit right in. We have a man on a red horse. The horse doesn't matter, but we will see that the man does. The man is standing among myrtle trees deep in a ravine. Again, commentators I, I read try to make suggestions about what the significance of the trees might be or the ravine. I actually read some rather impressive speculations of, as people tried to come up with meanings for these. But all of them are, are speculations that go beyond the text. What I'm cautioning us is let's resist that. Let's simply recognize that the image is that of a man prepared for something. He's waiting in a place of cover. The time for action has not arrived. That's the, the image that comes when you put it all together. Now with the man behind him, there are others. There are red, sorrel, and white horses. Now, these horses obviously include riders because we'll see in a little while that the man receives a report from, from these others. Horses talk. There's obviously riders on these horses that give a report. But again, these riders are in the background. The man is the focal point of the vision. 
I, I will just mention as a side, depending on your English translations, as I read, you may have had something other than sorrel lift of one of the horses. The, the Hebrew words for red and white, those are unquestioned. But the, that third color is a Hebrew word that is not very clear. It, it most likely means something like red or sorrel, but maybe not. We, we know horses come in speckled color, they come in brown, they come in dappled and so forth. This third one is some kind of other horse that's not red or, or white. It's possible that the word could mean any of those, because they're, and that's why there's variation if you start comparing your English translations. But this is the vision. Zechariah records this vision. We should have this vision in our mind's eye. I have also told you what it does not mean. But we probably have questions as to what it does mean. Well, we're not alone. Zechariah wonders the same. What does this mean? In verses 9 through 13, he asks and he receives an explanation of the vision. Look at verse 9. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. Zechariah humbly asks here for an explanation uh, of what he's seen, and he's given an answer. That, that is clear, and we, we read that. One thing that is not as clear, though, is who gives Zechariah the answer they receives. We're told it comes from the angel who was speaking with me there in verse 9, but, but it's not clear if that angel is the man who's also sitting on the horse or if that angel is another man, angel standing beside Zechariah. It really could be either the way it's worded. That we, we know in, by verse 10 that the man on the horse also clearly speaks. We just don't know who's answering him in verse 9. By the way, I, I know it says also that the man is standing now among the myrtle trees, but likely that, that just means that he's still sitting on the horse that's stationary. Although I guess he could have. Yeah, again, we're not details, are we? For what it's worth, I, I think there is a separate angel who is not the man on the horse who speaks to Zechariah. I think this is the angel who shows Zechariah a number of the different visions that, that come up and is the primary person to explain. In this first vision, however, this first vision has a significance to it and the explanation is given by the angel, or the explanation given by the angel is done by him yielding to the man on the horse and letting that man give the actual answer. Well, why would the man on the horse take over? Well, we're, in verse 11, we're told that this man is the angel of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us as we've gone through other Old Testament books, we've encountered this figure before in Old Testament passages. And I've explained, as we've hit it before, that I believe every time we come to the angel of the Lord, it's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, Christ manifesting himself on earth before his birth, a temporary 
display. He is the second member of the, the Godhead, who is the only visible mem- member of the Godhead, and he makes appearances on earth before his birth. There's no doubt that, that frequently the angel of the Lord is identified with the Lord himself. As we see places where he shows up in the Old Testament, there's times where he's worshipped, and we know that an angel will never accept worship. He's acknowledged as God. He accepts worship. Uh, so there's times where he's clearly identified as God. The only debated point is whether every instance of the angel, the phrase angel of the Lord, is God the Son, pre-incarnate. That's the debate. Some, no one debates that sometimes the angel of the Lord is God, he, that he's a pre-incarnate. Are you with me on that? It's just, we don't, there's debate if every time. Well, I believe every time we hit that phrase in the Old Testament, especially when you hit it in a late prophet like this, this is after the exile. The angel of the Lord has a long history in Old Testament by now. I don't think he'd accidentally use a phrase that is known to point to Christ when it's someone else. Generally, when this person shows up, the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, he comes as the captain of the Lord's hosts. The Lord's hosts are the angelic messengers that, that serve God's purpose on earth. I believe that's what we have happening here. We have the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, coming to command his hosts, the messengers, the angels of the Lord, the the angelic messengers that do the Lord's bidding. And that adds a poignancy to these events. It shows the Lord's intimate involvement with the events here on earth. So what I'm suggesting is we should read the scene this way. We have Zechariah observing the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, sitting on, on his horse in a grove of myrtle trees. And if that's the case, is it any wonder all the attention would go to him? He's the one to focus on. Behind him are at least three, maybe more, angelic messengers. We know there's at least three because there's three different horse colors, but there may be multiples of each, so... There's at least three, maybe more, angelic messengers that are sitting on their horses. Besides Zechariah, we have another angel who's showing the vision to Zechariah and explaining things. But in this case, he points to the Lord, and the Lord speaks to Zechariah from his horse when Zechariah asks for clarity. Give me an explanation. He points to the Lord, and the Lord speaks. The first thing the Lord tells Zechariah is that the other messengers are those whom Yahweh, the the, the covenant God of Israel, has sent to patrol over the whole earth. God is sovereign over all his creation. He's not just the God of Israel. So he sent these messengers to patrol over all the earth, and they've returned, and they've reported their findings to their captain, the angel of the Lord, their commander. And what they found is that the whole earth is peaceful and quiet. In other words, the, the nations are at rest rather than at war. Now, to understand the response to this message, we need to hear this from the perspective of the Jews. Remember, this is happening in the second year of Darius, as he reigns as king over the Persian Empire. Historically, he ascended to the throne, and if we read the, the history of the Persian Empire, when Darius ascends to the throne, there were widespread revolts. Uh, many of the more remote nations of the Persian Empire, they, they, 
they, they did not like being under the thumb of, of Cyrus and when he was king, and, and they thought that Darius might be a less effective ruler, or at least they thought it might take him some time to, to get his bearings as, as a king. And, and many of the more remote nations took that opportunity to try and gain their independence. So Darius spent his first couple of years quelching these uprisings. So the report that the messengers are bringing is that Darius has finished that effort. And things are now quiet throughout the entire Persian Empire. That is not good news for, the, for Jewish ears. We might think peace is good, right? Judah was still under the foreign dominion of the Persians. The Persian Empire may be secure and ease, but that only means that Judah is going to remain oppressed under foreign ruler. That's the way this message is going to ring to Jewish ears. The angel of the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Jewish nation, cries out at this report, How long? And then he intercedes immediately on their behalf with Father, the, the Lord of hosts. How long until Jerusalem receives compassion? He's expressing the, the question that's on the mind of, of all the people. Why was God still angry with them when the appointed time for their punishment had seemingly expired? You, you see, Jeremiah had promised that God's anger and judgment would last 70 years. And, and that generally from the date of the, the first deportation, I mentioned it this morning, in 605, that when Nebuchadnezzar came and put the nation initially under his rule and took some away, usually that 70 years was calculated from that time until the, the decree by Cyrus that allowed for the return in, in 535. That's 70 years. Some time, as I said, have passed since then. 15 plus years, because we know that's how long the temple stood unbuilt. Why were the Jews still under a foreign power? Now, some might argue the 70 years began destroyed. In that case, even then, if you do the math, 70 years would last until 516. That, that means the people are real close to, to that point. That, that gives the people four more years to finish the temple, and they'd expect to, to be free. But even that, the security then of the empire in this present moment, doesn't appear to indicate that they're about to receive their freedom. The Lord, verse 13, he gave an answer to that question. Not only does he intercede on their behalf, he gives an answer. And the answer ends up being an oracle, this sermon that Zechariah proclaimed to the people. Verse 13 just summarizes his words as gracious and comforting. Then verses 14 through 17 provide the words. So let's look at the oracle. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. Notice, Zechariah was to proclaim this. The angel of the Lord speaking to me says, Proclaim. 
This message was for the people. This message is not for Zechariah alone. This is for the people who are doubting now God's love. How can God love us when we're still being oppressed? That word for proclaim is a very formal word. It's the word to make a formal announcement. An authorized shout, if, if you will. This is the formal word from God. You may wonder what's going on. Hear this. God is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem. And in particular, for Zion. Zion was the name given often to the mount where the temple was. Jealousy means God will broker no rivals. He will have zero tolerance for unfaithfulness. He will have zero tolerance for any who fail to acknowledge that he alone has exclusive possession of Jerusalem and Zion. Put yourself in the context of the people of that day. Think about the message from, from their perspective. They knew that God's jealousy had caused the exile. God had made that clear. Their forebears had turned away from the exclusive worship of God. They had worshipped all these other idols. And prophet after prophet warned them that God's extreme jealousy will drive him to address that. And he will put them into exile. And the exile came. They knew God's jealousy was such that he would broker no others in worship. And they also knew that that exile allowed for the purifying destruction of the temple. That had all been explained through other prophets. But now the people had returned from exile. In the recent months, they were diligent rebuilding the temple. By all appearances, their hearts are now different. They are not those people of the previous generations. How would an extremely jealous God respond to them now? Their actions would not create the jealousy in God that brought punishment. How would it that his jealousy would change its expression? That was their expectation, but that was not the evidence they were seeing, was it? Suddenly God places a pronouncement here, a proclamation in the mouth of this priestly prophet that he is extremely jealous of his city and in the place of his city that is associated with his temple. In fact, God goes on to state that he's very angry with the nations because they are at ease. The peace in the Persian Empire that's raising the question mark in their minds, that same peace is raising anger in their God. The people should not mistake that peace that they're observing for God's blessing on the nations. God states that he was a little angry with Judah, and there's no doubt in their minds that was a fact. God drove them to exile, right? He was a little angry there, but God states his anger towards the nations that he used to exile them is far greater. Whereas, and the reason is because whereas God meant to punish the Jews through their exile, the nations they used sought to destroy them. They treated the people of Judah far more harshly, harshly than God's punishment required. They, they sought to annihilate Judah completely. Their attitude and their actions have provoked God to great anger against them. Therefore, what a wonderful word there that starts verse 16. Therefore, this is the logical conclusion of what God has just said. He is greatly angered. He is extremely jealous for Judah, greatly angered at the other nations. Therefore, 
the natural response of God's jealous love for his people, the natural response for his jealous love toward their enemies. Therefore, this is what God must do because he is a jealous God. Which is what? God makes three promises in verse 16. One, he will return to Jerusalem with compassion or mercy. Rather than painful chastisement, his people can expect gentleness from God. Two, he will rebuild his house. That, that temple where their hammers and saws are, are working, they can expect it will be completed. As a side note, I said it did com- they did finish it in 516 B.C., and that certainly was the initial fulfillment of, of this promise, but I don't believe it's the total fulfillment. We're, we're going to see in the series of visions that, that continue to develop that what God has promised his, his people, much of it is still future. So his promise to, to rebuild the temple, it, it's partially fulfilled in 516, but it hasn't reached its fullest fulfillment because complete fulfillment awaits the coming of the the king, Christ, who will reign directly over his people, and that will be associated with their worshiping in the temple. So, but two, the temple will be rebuilt. And then three, the third promise is that Jerusalem will experience an expanding builded, an expanded building program. That, that's what it means to stretch out the measuring line. Jerusalem is going to have construction going on. Jerusalem will once again become a a mighty city. Verse 17 then adds to the first proclamation. There's the initial again at the the start of the sentence, again proclaim. In other words, he's not done telling them everything there's to tell. There's more to announce. Not only will Jerusalem prosper, but that prosperity is going to overflow into all the neighboring cities around it. The entire country is is going to experience a a renewed wealth because God has once again chosen Jerusalem to to serve as the center of his people. That will be the center of his activities here on earth, and all the the cities surrounding that city of Jerusalem will prosper as that prosperity just flows out. The the words that are used for prosperity and comfort there in verse 17, those words link directly to verse 13. The Lord answered with gracious and comforting words, but prosperity and comfort use the same root in the Hebrew. So we're to understand that that these promises here for prosperity, physical blessings on on the city and the nation, and the promises of of the words for grace and and comfort that God gave, they're they're all one and the same. The comfort that Zechariah was to declare was that there was a glorious future coming. That's the message this first vision lays out. A future that, that later visions in this night will continue to expand upon, but that's the key. There's a glorious future coming. So now, having considered this initial vision here that Zechariah received on 15th of February, 519 B.C., what can we learn? We're sitting here more than 2,500 years later now, If you do the math, it's well over 2,500 years. Surely, there's something we can learn, right? 
In fact, I would say there, there's several answers to that question, or that things that we can learn. What can we learn? There's a number of things, but the most fundamental answer that I can think of, the overall greatest lesson that we can learn is this one. God is active in accomplishing his plan, whether we notice it or not. Just like that water, there's something going on. God is active in accomplishing his plan, whether we notice it or not. Really, we should easily relate to the people of Zechariah's day. It should not be hard at all for us to imagine the discouragement that they faced. Surrounded by hostility, living under oppression, wondering what God was doing. It doesn't seem like that should be a hard stretch of our imagination to, to think that way in our lives. It should be easy to imagine how hope might flee when they've waited for a decade for God to do what he promised them to do. After all, we respond the exact same way, don't we? How many times have we moaned the increasing oppression that we face as Christians in our nation and wondered, why is God letting that happen? How often have we grumbled that God hasn't eased a difficulty in our life the way that he ought, even though we are being faithful? How many times do we wonder if God's doing anything at all? We find God's apparent inactivity particularly troubling when we set ourselves to purposeful obedience, don't we? We determine that we're going to do something that we know God wants us to do, something that we haven't been consistently doing before. And we decide we're going to do that, and we invest ourselves in our newly determined obedience for a while. But then we realize nothing substantially has changed in our lives. And we begin to wonder, where is God? Maybe it's something like reading our Bibles regularly. Likely we all would acknowledge that, that we ought to read our Bibles regular, regularly. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but it's possible some of you have not historically done so. Maybe, though, you've taken my challenge that I gave to, to read our weekly psalm every day of the week. So this past week you read Psalm 73 every day of the week, and this week you've determined that you're going to, to read Psalm 74 every day. But maybe you're already starting to scratch your head because you've noticed that you've still dealt with the same sinful desires this past week that you did a week earlier. Shouldn't regular Bible reading change that? Where is God? Now, that, of course, is dealing with things on a personal level, but we can experience this kind of emotional and mental dissonance on other levels, too. Why does our church struggle to meet our budget when the, the non-conservative churches around us seem to just roll in money? Why is our nation becoming more secular when we still have more genuine Christians than most nations on earth? Why is God not moving the way we expect him to? Like I said, we can relate to the people of Zechariah's day because we're just like those people when it comes to, to finding that, that God does not always meet our expectations. Sometimes we fail to see him moving as we expect. <coughs> and we start to wonder, where is he? Well, we need to hear the proclamation that Zechariah has given. We need to hear <coughs> that proclamation in the language of our time. God is aware of what is happening on earth. 
He is intimately engaged. He is observing and preparing and waiting and watching and arranging things so that events will unfold exactly as he has planned. It doesn't matter whether we can see it or not. It is happening. It doesn't matter if what he is doing is hidden from our view. His word is sufficient. He is proclaimed. He is active. He is proclaimed. He is accomplishing his plan. God is active and accomplishing his plan whether we notice it or not. Just like that water, the molecules are gaining energy the whole time there's heat being applied. God is active and accomplishing his plan whether we notice it or not. In the coming chapters, we'll learn much more of what God has promised he's going to do for the nation of of Israel. But, But tonight, let's take this lesson home with us. God is active and accomplishing his plan whether we notice it or not. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the truth we've seen tonight, that you are an active God, a God who is accomplishing his plan. Father, I thank you for this lesson from this book of Zechariah, and I pray that you will continue to help us to hold on to that truth, and may our faith be strengthened, knowing that you are doing what you have said you would do, that you are actively involved in your earth, magnifying your Son, bringing glory to your name. So may we simply faithfully serve, go about the business that you've given us to do at this point in time, just as the nation of Israel was to go about building the temple. And may we leave the future to you. We know that if we simply obey, we magnify our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.